This is the greatest story ever podcast. There comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. With Keith Conrad. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Everyone has that one story that people never seem to believe. Everyone is sure you have to be making it up, but it's absolutely 100% true. Those are the kinds of stories that I'm trying to collect in this here podcast. One person who probably has a pretty great story to tell is Jeff Reitz, who unfortunately has found himself as a victim of the coronavirus outbreak, but probably not in the way you might think. See, Jeff has visited California's Disneyland theme park every day for more than eight years. It was a streak that ended at 2,995 consecutive days when Disneyland closed thanks to the outbreak back on March 13th. It's a shame to end a streak like that because the park was closed. It wasn't really his fault. Like, you can make an argument the streak could continue when the park reopens. After all, Cal Ripken's streak didn't end if the Orioles had a rainout. But alas, Jeff has said the streak is over. He does still plan on visiting the park again, though, when it reopens. So it's good to see he'll be staying on the good side of Mr. Mouse. Now, do we have a problem? No, sir. No, Mr. Mouse. No, Mr. Mouse. Oh, that's good, because I thought we had a problem for a minute there, huh? In an election year, I, I think it's a good policy to check in with Ken Bone. Ken Bone pretty much dominated mass media for a few wonderful days back in the 2016 election. See, Ken asked one of the questions during a nationally televised presidential debate, and for just a brief moment, everybody stopped the partisan brick-throwing contest and admired his everyman-ness and his red sweater. That's really what everybody noticed, his red sweater. What steps will your energy policy take to meet our energy needs while at the same time remaining environmentally friendly and minimizing job loss for fossil power plant workers? I wanted to talk to Ken about what the process is like to actually take part in a presidential debate and then what it's like when suddenly... You become the most famous man in viral media for a few days. Thanks so much for joining me, Ken. I'm happy to be here, Keith. Thanks for having me on. So uh, tell me a little bit about what it's like to actually um, be in a presidential debate. Like, uh, how, how, does that, how does that come about? Like, do, are you sort of like picked from a random sample or do you volunteer for it? Like, how does, how does that actually happen? Well, there's no volunteering or signing up or anything. It is 100% random. The Commission for Presidential Debates contracts with last debate cycle, they used a Gallup poll, uh, but they don't always, though. Sometimes they have used different polling services, from what I understand. Uh, but you'll get a call uh, just as if you were doing a survey or a poll, mm -hmm. and they won't say anything about you being at the debate. They'll just ask you if you'd like to take a survey and uh, I was sitting in my house on a Sunday watching Futurama. Nice. The phone rang. It was a, a number that I didn't recognize, so I figured it was a bill collector because I'm not always great at paying my car payment on time. <laughs> and so uh, they asked, would you like to take a survey? I'm like, yeah, what else have I got to do? I'm sitting in here in my pajamas watching cartoons. So we do the survey, and they ask me all these questions, and uh through the questions, without you knowing it, they're screening you to see if you're a suitable candidate uh, for the debate. And when you get to the end, if you are, you know, if you're not, I imagine they just say thanks and hang up. 
Uh, but if you are a suitable candidate after the screening, then they uh, invite you to be a, a debate participant. So there's no no pre-sign-up, no nothing. It, it really is 100% random. Wow. So at, after you're actually picked to be in the debate, um, do they do they do anything to, to prep you to figure out, you know, sort of work with you to figure out what your question is going to be or, or anything like that? They send you an information packet via courier, and it's got all kinds of stuff about uh, some forms you have to fill out to do a security screening for the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of information about where you should go, what time you should be there, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Uh, pretty basic stuff. And then a couple of note cards, and they tell you to come up with two questions. Do not share them with anybody. Uh, don't tell anybody else what it is. Don't post it on social media and none of that stuff. Just come up with what you want your question to be and then come up with another one uh, in case there's, like, duplicates. They want to make sure that they have enough different questions to get through uh, the whole debate time. Uh, So my primary question was the one I asked on the air about energy policy, and my backup was about uh, student loans. A lot of people had asked about student loans, so they told me, if you get called on, uh, ask your primary question, the one about energy. And uh, if if we have time to get to student loans or if they go to student loans, they'll call on somebody else who had that, you know, a, a similar question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't share those questions with anybody except the uh, debate moderate moderators. And they didn't even see him until I think it was probably oh, one or two in the afternoon when Anderson Cooper and Martha Raddatz came through with their, uh, their assistants and they looked at all our questions and they took them away and they read them all. And then uh, they came back and told us which of our two questions, you know, to use if we got called on. And then they just explained to us that there's no guarantee of who is going to get called on or if you're going to get called on at all. Like, you know, they kind of grouped them up. There were three or four about foreign policy and three or four about the economy. And uh, basically once it devolves into name-calling and it's not productive anymore, then they'll just toss the rest of the, you know, the foreign policy questions out and move on to the next broad topic. Uh, Until so that know. devolves into name-calling and then they'll move on to another one. Yeah, it, and it happened pretty quickly for the most part. You know, one topic would turn into just a bunch of sniping and uselessness and so they would move on to the next topic you know we had no idea what order our questions were stacked in or anything uh, so you know you don't know if you're going to get called on until you hear your name so was there a lot of nerves going into it you know that night not for me because i don't really care uh i've never been nervous to be in front of a crowd or you know, on television or any of that stuff. Of course, I had never been on live television with millions of viewers before, but to me it wasn't any different than giving a speech in high school or whatever. Uh, that had never bothered me before. So, uh, Yeah, yeah and, and I guess the uh, the crowd you're actually looking at isn't that big. You know, it, it would be probably about the same size as the one you, you did in high school. Yeah, it was a very similar room. The debate was at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and it was in one of their, like, uh, multi-purpose rooms, like a gymnasium slash auditorium that they kind of built uh, the the set in. 
all the the podium and the chairs for us and all that. I was at one end of, I think it was a basketball court, mm-hmm. and then the crowd was all sitting in the bleachers. And so the, the live crowd was only, I don't know, 150, 200 people, something like that. So what did you think of their answers when uh, when you actually asked asked the question? I got what I expected. I got uh, <laughs> Secretary Clinton got to go first, and she said, check my website, uh, which is what I expected <laughs> her to say. It's really helpful. It was, it, it was kind of a softball question for her, I thought, because she has very strong environmental policy. And, of course, I had read her website before, and I was like, oh, you know, let's give her a chance to say it out loud. And then she's like, you know, check my website. And also Donald Trump uses Chinese steel to build his buildings. And then it was Trump's turn. And it was something about ISIS and whatever they had been harping on before. So they talked very little about energy policy. Neither one of them used the term climate change a single time. Uh, My question was the only one about environmental policy in all three debates. And wow. the term climate change didn't get mentioned one single time through all three debates. Uh, so that was really kind of surprising since it, it was then and still is today a very hot issue. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's interesting that, that it was the only time that came up during the, during the three debates because you would think, you know, from, from both of their perspectives, that that would be an issue that they'd, they'd both want to talk on. But apparently not. Uh, well, it's also... It's not entirely them, because uh, they don't really get to choose what the questions are going to be mm-hmm. from either the town hall participants or the moderators in the other couple debates. Uh, so, you know, part of the, the responsibility for that, I guess, is with the people that were organizing the, uh, the debates or the moderators. Uh, I suspect there'll be a lot more about it this time through. Probably, yeah, uh, definitely. So, so basically... Afterwards, you become, you know, a, a bit of a, I don't know, an internet folk hero, uh, because I, I think you just, you know, I, I think you just seem like a like a normal person, you know, more more so than really anybody else that, uh, you know, that had been been seen in the uh, presidential debate cycle. So, what was it like? Like, how how soon did you know that that, uh, you know, you 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 would sort of like become the story of that debate? Well, the the trick to seeming like a normal person on TV or on the radio is being a normal person. You've been it, in the it helps. for a long time. Yeah. And you've known plenty of people like yourself who you're the same on the air as you are when you're not on the air and you're a genuine guy. Uh, you've also known plenty of people in the business who have like, you know, a funny voice that they put on and they're like <laughs> a weird character Yeah. and they're nothing like they are uh, out on the street. So it's you can't maintain that forever. Even the really great ones can't maintain that forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, just being a regular guy helps quite a bit, and not being nervous when you're on the air—that's uh, the big thing. Uh, that's the difference between being in that kind of business and not. Or, you know, even when you're a temporary guy like me, uh, the only reason you continued to see me for such a long time is because when people would call and ask if I wanted to be on their show, I was like, "Yeah, sure, sounds like fun," instead of just not answering because it was stressful. Well, uh, so I, that was no big deal. I, I I will say that uh, a, a day or two after the debate, you tweeted. Um, I, I think it was on Twitter. You, you posted uh, like all the uh, a list of all the uh, the interviews that you had scheduled, 
and uh, right at the top of the list was like Keith Conrad WIND. So that that was really cool. I was like, wow, yeah. Oh yeah, you were one of the early ones. I think I was on your show uh, pretty early Monday morning, uh, which would have made you probably one of the first five or ten shows I was on. Uh, that page up, but I was all kept track of in a spiral notebook. I had something booked every 15 minutes, pretty much, from uh, 4 a.m. until about uh, 10 p.m. for each of the first three days, mm-hmm. and some days more than that. Uh, I think Wednesday was my longest day, the Wednesday after the debate, where my my first hit was on one of the morning shows, Fox News, uh, or Fox and Friends, maybe, or one of the early morning shows at, uh, I think, 5 that was via satellite from a TV studio. And then my last one was a phone call to a morning radio show in Dublin, Ireland at 2 a.m. our time in the central time zone, uh, which was morning for them. Uh, so that was a pretty long day. And then the next day, Thursday, I had stuff starting at 5 a.m. And I actually had to work at the power plant that night. So I was up uh, for about 36 straight hours between working and doing media that day. And you didn't get to watch many Futurama episodes during that time, I'm sure. Uh, it was a while before I even turned my television back on. I didn't, my wife would, would have the TV on sometimes when I would rush through to uh, change my clothes or, you know, or whatnot on my way to the next thing. And occasionally I would see myself on the TV screen. That was when I knew, like, man, this is really unusual. This is... Uh, <laughs> That's kind of when I knew that it was turning into something in the first place. We weren't allowed yeah. to have our phones or anything with us at the debate. Uh, so when I got back to my car where I had my phone locked up, I powered it back on, and I had just dozens of messages, and my voicemail box was about full. And uh, then as soon as my phone powered back on, people were calling me, with friends of mine telling me, I had their stories about you all over the place. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And then when I got home, my wife was watching coverage of the debate. And on MSNBC, they weren't talking about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. They were talking about me. It was my big giant head on the screen. I didn't really get it. Uh, But by the time I got home that evening, I had already talked to five or six producers just driving home, Mm -hmm. lining stuff up for the next day. Uh, the, The next couple weeks after that were really just a blur of only sleeping two or three hours a night and doing nonstop uh, engagements on TV and radio and internet and shooting video and just all kinds of wild stuff. So how long did that last? Uh, I was really, really busy for, uh, let's see, definitely the first month because oh, that wow. was leading up to election day. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, it was still pretty hot and heavy up until the end of the year. It calmed down a little bit after the holidays. But I still had probably five or six engagements, and at least one of those where I had to travel uh, every month for all of 2017. And it just kind of tapered down from there to now. I, now I mostly have a normal life again. Like I'll, I'll do a podcast or an interview or something like we're doing now uh, maybe once a week or so. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, still once a week, that's that's uh <laughs> that's pretty good for for four years later. I, I, I'm sure the fact that it's an election year again that that probably has brought things back up. Yeah, I, I would suspect that in 2021, uh, things my life will mostly be normal again. Uh, the election <laughs> cycle will be over 
and uh, yeah, when they when they bring a new a new crop of uh, of of people in to to ask questions, uh, you know, there'll be a, a new story in there. So now here's something uh, you know that I'm I'm kind of blindsiding with. Well, well, first of all, let me ask. Now I believe that uh, uh, you were an undecided voter at the time. So did anybody like really distinguish themselves or did you kind of leave there, leave the debate with the, the same feeling you had going into it? Well, undecided is a weird term in politics. Uh, it's, to be an undecided voter, what they asked me in the pre-screening was, who are you going to vote for? And I told them who I thought I was going to vote for. Mm-hmm. And that's the last person I've ever told uh, who I voted for or was planning on it. And then they asked me on a scale of one to ten, how likely are you to change your mind? Uh, with one being you definitely will not change your mind no matter what. Uh, your candidate could shake a baby to death on stage and you wouldn't change your mind. Right. And 10 means you're a complete coin toss. And I said, I don't know, like three. Because, uh, you know, at that point, you got to remember, this, this screening happened before the Access Hollywood tape even came out. Oh, yeah. That's, why, yeah. that's when I get a whole lot of hate on, like, Twitter and uh, other places on the internet like how could you possibly even consider voting for a guy that said those awful things i'm like well the for one uh lots of presidents are awful people you're gonna have to accept that if you want to be an adult true and uh for two the pre-screening where they selected all of us was before any of that stuff came out it was also before the second round of hillary email indictment stuff came from the fbi oh yeah so there was new news stuff coming out literally every day in that election so i figured well new stuff might continue to come out so just because i think i know who i want to vote for maybe some new information will come out and i'll change so i said like four three or four which to me is pretty well decided mm-hmm. but it leaves a little wiggle room but uh, in such a divisive election they're like oh no that definitely meets the threshold because Almost everybody they're talking to is saying, like, one, I don't care. I will never, ever, ever vote for Hillary. She should be in jail. Or I will never vote for Donald Trump. He's a monster. Uh, so just saying, like, anything other than no, definitely yeah. not. Yeah, so, uh, so if they undecided. Yeah, if they had been talking to me, I would have said, I, I think they're both monsters, so I'm not sure what the, <laughs> where yeah, that was, answer That was that. what made me an undecided voter. Like, I, I didn't like Donald Trump. I don't like him now either. Yeah. Um, I've never been a Donald Trump fan, but I haven't liked Hillary Clinton since I was in high school. She ran for Senate in the state of New York, despite having lived her whole life in Arkansas. You know, she bought a house in New York so that she could set up residency like a week before the deadline to establish New York residency for the senatorial election. Because she saw a vulnerable seat and decided, well, I'll be a carpetbagger and go be a senator based exclusively on what my last name is. Yeah, And I was like, well, the people in New York will never fall for that. And then, of course, they did, because I vastly overestimate the American electorate, apparently. Yeah, I, I was kind of in the same boat because, you know, I, I kept hearing people saying that it was the most important election of uh, of our lifetimes, which they say about every election. But then I'm looking at, uh, at you know, my choices and I'm thinking, well, you can't really think this is the most important election of our lifetimes if this is the choice you're giving us. There is statistically there is only one candidate in American history since they started tracking statistics this way that is more unlikable than Hillary Clinton that got worse favorability ratings than Hillary Clinton and that was Donald Trump. So we literally <laughs> had the number one and number two least likable candidates in history running against each other. 
That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I uh not sure if I if I didn't know that or if I'd forgotten about that, but that's a fascinating statistic actually. Yeah, it's uh you know, it's obviously easy to look back on history with the, the rose colored glasses or whatever. I mean like mm-hmm. oh, everything was so obvious. No, it wasn't. Everybody in the in the country either hated one of these people or hated both of these people. Uh, yeah. That was the only thing that makes you undecided is if you just if you didn't like either of them. Yeah. And that was definitely the boat I fell into. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that uh that uh, we were both in the same boat at the time. So, if they actually called you now in uh, in 2020 and uh, you were selected for a debate, uh what what sort of question do you think you would ask now? Would it would it still be on energy policy or would you be focused on something else? I'd ask almost exactly the same question. Uh, so I work in the fossil power industry. I work for a coal-fired power plant. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, if you're for a Green New Deal, I want to know specifics. What is your plan to make our energy profile more green in the U.S. without making every single community that is built around these power plants into a new like Flint, Michigan? You know, or a new Detroit where industry just vanishes and everybody is poor. And it's it's easy to say, like, oh, well, you know, you just move away and you go where the jobs are. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you don't, because 10 years ago you bought a $165,000 house, which you thought was a nice, modest price. and You still owe $120,000 on it, and now that all the industry in the area is gone, the only employer in the area is gone, uh, it's only worth 60000 bucks. Yeah. So are you going to take a $60,000 loss and think you're going to actually get a loan for a new place to live? Uh, that's impossible for almost everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's just not as simple as that. So what's our plan to transition people into the new green economy, if that's the direction we go? And if we decide we're not going to go Green New Deal, if we have more of the Trump idea, then what are we going to do about the environment? We still have to take care of the environment. I like the environment very much. I live in it, and my kid lives in it. Yeah. And we're going to continue to live in it for a long time. How are we going to keep it livable, uh, you know, for humans to still inhabit this planet? Uh, and nobody wants to answer that with specifics. They just like to throw out big terms. Well, and that's the thing about uh, the debate process is you got to fit all that on one index card. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's sad in a way. Uh, and the the biggest illustration I see in this election cycle of this is Mike Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg's polling at what, like five percent as we're recording this, and you know who knows by tomorrow he might be forced out of the race or something. But uh, today, as we're recording this, he's polling at about five percent, exclusively on the back of the incredible amount of money he's spending. Everybody says like oh, it's incredible that Bloomberg is buying the election. Right. Well, here's the secret though. You could spend $5 billion, and that doesn't buy you one single vote. It just buys you advertisements, and that puts your name out there, and people recognize your name. And then all of a sudden on the ballot or on the poll, they're like, oh, Bloomberg, yeah, I think I've heard of that. And they check the box next to it. So it's not just exclusively shame on our politicians, and shame on our politicians, because most of them are horrible. But it's also a shame on us as the electorate for only – Seem, only being willing to digest things one 15-second ad read at a time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's really kind of a sad state of affairs. It is. Um, and <laughs> that that's kind of a downer note to leave things on. But, uh, uh, Ken, I hope, uh, I hope the uh, 
I hope you're nowhere near as busy in this election cycle as you were in the last one. Well, I hope so, too, because I mean, uh, being a meme is fun, but having Twitter followers does not pay for your mortgage. No, uh, it doesn't. It's kind of a fun thing that I do. You know, I still, yeah. every once in a while, I'll still travel around and give a speech or whatever, but I, you know, I don't get paid hardly anything for that. I basically break even doing it just because I like doing it. Uh, and I hope I don't have to take all of my vacation time from my real job to go and uh, and do all that kind of stuff this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would rather spend the time with my family. Yeah, I think that's probably a better use of your time, too. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me and uh, sharing your story and, uh, and the insight. Uh, no problem. Happy to do it. I think you can top Ken Boner, Justin, last week's guest who thought his sister had been kidnapped. Send me an email at greateststoryeverpodcast at gmail.com. Ken Boner was a normal guy who suddenly found himself all over the TV, the Internet, and radio, and the like, and radio shows like the one I was producing at the time. One person who knows a little bit about what that feels like is my friend Darla J. Darla finished up a roller coaster of a year by becoming a viral sensation for beating cancer, which is a good reason. I'll talk to Darla next week about what it was like to suddenly be the lighthearted video that ends up showing up at the end of pretty much every newscast in America for a couple weeks. Believe me, you saw her even if you didn't know who it was. Gabatron?